Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. Uh, we got a lot of topics today. Mostly yeah. going to be doing community stories and uh, stories from the week. We're going to skip a main topic that we choose because I didn't have time to research anything this week. But we got lots of good suggestions from people. So it'll be yeah. faster topics, but a lot more topics. Makes sense. Cool. Uh, number one, Kingdom Hearts 3 DLC. Remind. Yeah. Jason is the resident uh, <laughs> Kingdom Hearts 3 expert. Yes, that is true. I Tell am me about an things expert. that I that I never <laughs> that I don't know about because I I didn't even see this. Yeah, this is crazy stuff. So um, Nomura, this is something Square Enix has been doing lately. I, I find it very interesting. But they make these huge announcements on their like uh, music concert tours ah. with their you know whatever's going on. That's there. So true. They, they do that a lot, don't they? Yeah, they've been doing this a lot now, and it's like, dude, you if you go to a Kingdom Hearts or Final Fantasy like. Um, symphonic concert, you can expect to see some footage or something that uh, you've never seen before. <laughs> mm. So Tetsuya Nomura shows up at this event and he talks about how um, Kingdom Hearts 3 is going to have some like a big story downloadable content kind of thing. There's like four different parts to it. It's going to be huge. And one of them is going to be like a backstory. Nobody knows. No one knows exactly what this stuff is, but he kind of gave a few hints um, that Remind is what it's called. Um, would be like like a mysterious story of Kingdom Hearts 3 where he's going to be covering just a little bit more. Uh, but it's additional story content with DLC. And then he also talks about a limit episode, which is like a boss fight. There's like a new boss fight and some new mm. story content. No one knows what this is, though. And then he announced um, one more thing, a secret episode, which is similar again to a boss fight and some more story content <laughs> there um japanese people will be able to get english um voices now as well and there's gonna be a new key heart or keyblade and a new like drive form kind of thing so there's kind of a lot of content coming here and the keyblade and drive form i think are just free dlc but this story content is going to be the the paid dlc and it seems like he's packing quite a bit of stuff in here uh, so I'm pretty interested in finding out what it is, but we really yeah. don't know much more than what I just said. That's I've got a good, it. I got a good pun for you from Colin Peluso. Are you ready for this? I can't wait. Will this DLC remind Nomura that he needs to go back to rewrite the ending? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think he's doing that. I don't think any of this has to do with the ending of the game. People are theorizing that um, Remind is actually going going to explore possibly explore Xion's backstory and how she how exactly she uh shows up i'm, I'm assuming you guys have played the game if not i apologize <laughs> but that's what people are saying so that's the people say yeah uh cap doc said something what was it i want to see it um, oh he says an rpg boxes. is a game oh. that makes you feel like spider-man that's for a later topic i'll come back to that but yes uh oh, yeah. that's true should make you feel like Spider-Man. That's the whole point. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke memeing on IGN that Dunky does on his yeah. channel for people who are not aware oh, of that okay. inside joke. Okay. Um, okay, anything else about Kingdom Hearts 3 DLC? Uh, no, that's basically all we got. But gosh, okay. dude, if you guys can go to one of these concerts, do it because there's going to be some news dropped or something. <laughs> Um, Nintendo Labo VR update. 
Yeah. Not about so, this either. Now this is this is very interesting. So a lot of people are not liking it. However, so there's two games that specifically that have VR support right now. One of them is Mario Odyssey, and there's a mm-hmm. specific part of the game that you can play in VR. You can't play the whole game in VR. They didn't really come up with a way for that to be possible. However, oh yeah, Kingdom Hearts 3 has critical mode, by the way, for all those who are waiting for that. And that's as of right now, I think. so. And apparently it's freaking raw, dude. It is really hard to play that game in critical mode. I haven't even tried it yet, but Kingdom Hearts 3 has critical mode. But Mike, this is why you'll be interested in this Nintendo Labo thing. Um, The Breath of the Wild support for this game. Basically, it is VR, right? You get your cardboard Labo VR thing, Mm. right? Um, And they didn't do anything unique to make the VR experience anything spectacular. It's not first person. It's not, so you are a third person camera in VR. Now, whether when you turn your head, you're, I believe this is the case that when you turn your head, you're, you're looking left and right. I don't like your Lakitu following. Yeah. Yeah. um, yeah. Link, I guess. Um, Now I don't know that that's how it works, but I do know that it is VR and it is third person, which Hmm. I know is something that you've been wanting to see more in VR stuff because everyone tends to go either first person or have these weird if it's third person, they have these fixed camera angles, you know? Yeah. And it's this one, they didn't change into. the game at all. So I think, I believe it's a free update. Um, I don't think there's anything. It's just, it's just update VR support for people who have the game. So I haven't Wh- tried wh- it yet. For which, for which game? Mario Odyssey and uh, Breath of the Wild. You can basically oh. play the entire game of Breath of the Wild in VR. What the? Whereas heck? Mario Odyssey, it's just, there's just one specific part that they allow VR support for. Hmm. So, it may be worth it to, to for you to just kind of look at it and get a feel and get get see what because they VR games don't do this right and people are saying yeah. oh it's nothing special because Nintendo just left the third person camera angle behind Link and they didn't really do anything special for this game but I look at that and I'm like that's sweet that's what VR should be you I don't know. need to do anything crazy it's so just, you it's should just definitely a matter, check it out it's just a matter of opening up like the opportunity to have a wider field of view. Potentially, yes, yes. I guess. Which it seems like we got some fish eye something or other going. It looks pretty. And, uh, and being able to, to turn your head when you hear a sound and see what's coming from over there just makes it so you can see more stuff, really. Yeah. I haven't tried it. Of... I think I'm going to do that tonight. I don't have a Labo, unfortunately, but you can you can make your own Labo, I guess. So, so I have you, a... you, just, you just use the Switch's screen. In yeah, front well, of we your have face, that Google right? Cardboard, remember? Yeah. Yeah. You slide the screen into a cardboard thing. So we have a Google cardboard. You just need a strap to strap it around your head. Mm. Probably do it on a couch or something in case the whole <laughs> thing just falls off. Don't do it over hard floor. Um, but yeah, just strap it to your head with like the cardboard kind of visor. And I that should that should be enough. I don't know. Maybe that the screen's be, too big though for my Google cardboard. Be an interesting thing to try. We should gerrymander a freaking uh uh I always forget the name of it. Virtual Boy. Oh, yes. A switch yes, into it. dude, totally. <laughs> that would be sick. Just just like take it apart and like put the switch screen in and put it back together. That was yeah, cool that, because it wasn't strapped to your head. You just like put your face in it, you know? Uh, Colin says he wants to see you live stream struggling to make your own fake Labo. Yeah, I'm not going to live stream it. It'll take a while. But I do have a Google <laughs> Cardboard. In fact, I have it. There. One sec. 
It's back there on the on the shelf. Yeah, it's probably too small for the Switch. Because it's made for phones, but Well darn, I have the um Oh, the I have box. the cover for it, but I don't have the actual thing. Uh, <laughs> but if this is the size of my Google Cardboard, that's maybe, 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 maybe big enough. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Colin says, oh boy, my dream is coming true. <laughs> He's seeing you live stream it right now. <laughs> it's already um, made for me. I'll I'll try out the Google Cardboard. If not, I really don't know. But you can print out designs for Nintendo Labo for free. You print it out on a piece of paper, and then you just put that on cardboard and cut along the lines, and you can create your own Labo kind of stuff that way. So mm. it is doable. Nice. <laughs> Colin can finally feel like <laughs> Nice, nice. <laughs> Keep them rolling, fellas. You're doing good today. You're on a roll. Number yep. three. Avengers Endgame reaches 1.2 billion in its first weekend. Yeah, holy crap. By the way, that, that is an insane that is that is a record. This is the most viewed film of all time. Yeah, it's I think the highest grossing film ever was uh was it Avatar or was like, it or maybe the last Avengers or something? I can't remember. But Hold 2. Point, I want to say it's 2.6 or 7 billion is what it grossed. Yeah, this is going to hit that is, in like two weeks. <laughs> this is definitely going to top it. I, I yeah. think it's a pretty much a foregone conclusion. It's uh, it's really, really, really crazy. Yeah. Oh, Aaron, Aaron, and you haven't Aaron, seen it yet, right? No, I haven't. Aaron is saying it's only domestic. Uh, worldwide total was broke has broken two billion. He says. Oh wait, really? I thought it was worldwide, but I could be. If that's totally the case, wrong. then this is going to make like probably three or or four. Maybe billion. yeah, four, maybe even five. Uh, probably not. I wouldn't. I'd say probably not four because I would think that most people went to see it opening weekend, and that it'll it'll. I mean, it'll still probably have strong numbers the next two weeks or so. But I'm sure that most most people went to see it opening weekend. But yeah, I'm seeing 1.2 billion worldwide, but that's um, on Variety.com. That could be that could just not be up to date yet. When was the article posted? Uh, this morning, I think, because that's when all the all the results and stuff came out. It was posted April twenty eighth. What day is today? April twenty eighth. So that was today. Aaron says he's mistaken. So yeah, one. Okay, billion. cool. But still, one point two billion. That that's how much. Uh, that's a that's insane. That's just a lot of money. <laughs> that's a lot. It's uh, a lot of money. Going to be a lot of opinions about it when you have that many people seeing it. Be hard to reach a consensus. Legodaz says he saw it twice and he likes it. He thought Infinity War was a better movie. Oh, um, okay. Infinity War. <laughs> Infinity War is very good. Um, yeah. It's a hard thing to follow up. I, I would feel like it's kind of like uh, trying to follow up Empire Strikes Back. You know. Yeah. It's yeah. like you have this movie that ends in a way where it's like, you know, it's middle. Infinity War is not a middle movie like um, Empire is, but it has that feel to it where it's like you leave it off in the belly of the whale kind of a deal. And so mm -hmm. like, it's not resolved and you have some people that are going to be like, Oh, I'm not satisfied because the movie didn't end <laughs> with the heroes winning. 
on one side, but on the other side, it's like, oh, the conflict feels so heavy. It's like, how could they possibly overcome this? And you're looking forward yeah. to seeing that. And that could lead to disappointment in the follow-up. So um, I kind of tweeted about this yesterday because yeah, yeah. my brother is a big fan of the MCU. And so I hadn't seen very many of them. Um, and so I, I watched with him basically, well, not basically, every single one except Incredible Hulk, which I could only stand watching that for about 15 minutes. And I, I, couldn't, really? I, did, I couldn't freaking watch it. It was so bad. Oh, gosh, it was so bad. Um, and so, you know, what I found interesting, though, was that uh, I think every time that I had decided to go see a, a Marvel superhero movie, it was almost always the wrong one for me, like for my sensibilities. Like instead of seeing, um, let's see, what came out like at relatively the same time. Like we went and saw uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, right? Yeah. So we went and saw yeah. that one, and I didn't Thunder like that. Thing. But I really liked Captain America Winter Soldier. I don't know if those were in the same phase, but it feels like they were around the same time-ish, right? So oh I chose goodness. to see this one, and and but like that happened like over and over again, <laughs> where I always saw like the wrong one at the time that there was one out that I probably would have liked a lot better. Um, mm -hmm. And so I just got this feeling like, you know, these are all written the same way. I think even last week we we made like a short quip about... Superhero movies are written with this forced comedy in them that every yes, character tries the, to be super witty all the time. Incredible and, wittiness that is just yeah. so not real, yeah. And, like, so there are some really, really good ones that don't follow the same tropes that actually take some pretty good risks in their storytelling. And most of them are done by the Russo brothers. So that's Captain America Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, Infinity War, Avengers Infinity War, and then now Avengers Endgame. So those four are done by the Russo brothers. Hmm. And they're all... I, I haven't seen Endgame, obviously, but those are all really good. I also really liked Doctor Strange, as Lego Dog is bringing hmm. up. Um, Doctor Strange is really different. And here's the weirdest thing ab about it. Like, this is probably an impossible thing to get over for what they're trying to do. Create this massive like 20 something movie universe, right? Cause you can't have the same storytellers doing them all to kind of maintain continuity and consistency. So there's lots of problems with continuity from one film to another. And tone is really crazy too. Like Thor Ragnarok, for instance, the third Thor is a huge departure mm -hmm. from the previous two in tone. It's, it's trying to be a comedy almost rather than, like a more serious, dramatic kind of like epic thing. Yeah. And, I did watch that one. And like, it's pretty good. I like it. Right. But it leaves off. I don't want to like, I'm not going to spoil it, but it leaves off on what would normally be a pretty dire, sour note, but they make light of it. They have this character who has like a New Zealand accent, basically like this rock guy. And he's always, that's Taika Waititi, by the way, that's the director. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, 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 he's a funny character. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that accent's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's, he kind of, they just make light of even like the most dire situations in that movie. Right. And it yeah. ends with a ship kind of pulling up over the top of them and you don't know what it is. And it's a, it's a post credit scene. I think that's like, Oh, look forward to the next movie. 
but it's like their ship gets overtaken by this other ship. And then you start Infinity War. That's freaking Thanos, like, murdering half the people. And it's, like, really, really dark. Hmm. So, like, the, the continuity from the way we're handling tone from this movie into Infinity War, it's just, like, immediately takes this 100, like, table flip turn. Just Now it's all dark and serious and really hardcore. And, like, literally moments before, eh, you know... It's all fun and games kind of a thing. So that's the hard thing about watching even the good movies back to back because sometimes they have a hard time feeling like they belong together. But that, I think, is to be expected from so many different filmmakers trying to do their own thing with their, you know, their opportunity. And that's fine. But um, I don't know where I was going with this. Basically, Doctor Strange kind of feels like that but i loved it as like a standalone movie because it's it's freaking like wizards and magic and wizards are just dope dude like wizards are sick magic is awesome (laughs) but it's like in the same world that say captain america exists in right it's it's a a weird question that comes to me like oh people can just learn how to use these awesome magic powers why don't why don't why don't we do that? Why don't we have the Avengers learning yeah. more powers? You know what I mean? Like they kind of just uh, I'll just rely on my superhuman. Yeah, everyone has their shield. one power, and that's it. Yeah. But it, it didn't seem to be limited to like you know like Harry Potter does it, where it's like oh you have to have the gift for it, otherwise you can't use it. Right. It's like it seemed to me. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but uh, in Doctor Strange, like you just have to open your mind to like these other possibilities because he's he's a brain surgeon or something the neurosurgeon and he's like yeah. all empirical and you know like doesn't believe what he can't see kind of a thing and, and his, his mind is opened to anyways i'm not going to get off forever about this but there's some good ones out there but yes what rob said earlier was is is very true like you basically need to see almost all of these movies in order for these last two Avengers payoffs to work. <laughs> you, you really need to know about all these characters. And, stuff. and that's a large, that's like a 50 hour commitment. That's, that it's, is a, it takes weeks to do it. It's a lot. <laughs> and most of them I thought were pretty mediocre, but the good ones are really good. Okay. Um, Rob says, do you too feel that your occupation of analyzing stories affects your ability to enjoy popcorn flicks? To a degree, yes, unless they make it really, really clear that it's a joke. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of like that. Like, it it basically lets you know right from the start. Like, they'll set up a situation that looks kind of menacing or dark, and then he plays some pop music from the 80s and starts dancing around. You know, they they right. make it pretty clear that this is not meant to be taken seriously, which is, you know, a lot of people were asking me, how can you like Guardians 2 over 1? Um, I'm not going to get into, like, a whole, like, spiel about it, but that's part of the reason why. Because, like, a lot of things that would bother me if it was a serious, dramatic story are, are just completely completely like overtaken by some of the jokes that are some of the funniest freaking things. I, I won't even spoil it. I think everyone should watch Guardians of the Galaxy 2 for one specific joke in the third act that is like one of the funniest things I've ever seen on screen in my whole life. It's just perfect. Yeah. Anyways, that's why. Um, let's move on to Square Enix has taken Sony's time slot 
at E3. That's yeah, the this one, is, Rob. This yes. is big. Rob is uh, very deftly um, referencing the joke I'm talking about. Yes, that's the one. Um, okay, so Sony Sony is not attending E3 this year. If you didn't know that, well, here you go. You, now you know that Sony's not going E3 this year, which is weird. We've talked about that in the past. It seems I know strange. they're they're huge. It's so strange. Um, and it, especially since I think there are a lot of games they could potentially show still. I mean, I guess they showed them. I don't, I don't know. It's weird. Square, though, is taking that time slot, which is like a prime time time slot on Monday, I think. Um, and of course, we're all expecting that this means that they got they got the Final Fantasy VII concert Final Fantasy VII remake, the yeah. day before. And they have a huge like prime time time slot at E3 to do a live stream. Uh, it's unclear to me. I, th- I don't know if they're going to do. I thought I read they're not going to do a press conference where they'll have a live person on stage. I, I've heard that it's a more like a Nintendo Direct deal, but which is better. I mean, it's just yeah, always it's fine to do it that way. It's better. But I expect with that much time allocated to them, only them, that they will be showing Final Fantasy VII Remake. It's yeah. pretty much a foregone conclusion. Well, it, this is the kind of slot. If, if you take this time slot and you don't have anything big to announce... You're going to be ridiculed and made fun of, and people are just, you're going to be laughed at. Basically, like people are going to be like, "What? What are you doing?" So mm-hmm. this is like the final confirmation that they have something very big to announce, and it's probably Final Fantasy VII. Um, Chuckle Rep says maybe it's a uh, Final Fantasy sixteen. I mean, possibly. I don't think so. Uh, and there's two reasons why I don't. Huh. One is that. They've really, they've already said in the past, once King Arthur was out, their fo- their main focus was going to be the remake. But two, they've yeah. also... Well, Final Fantasy 15 DLC isn't even fully out yet. Well, the, the DLC's out. It's just that... that um... Well, the Arden, is it out now? Yeah, it's out. It's been out ah, for a few shit. weeks. So they're done oh. with that. Um, but they also consolidated all their business divisions. <clears throat> right? They had like 11 business divisions and they've like reduced that to four or five or something. Mm, so yeah, that I would mean that. to me that they have very few teams available to like get get started on something. I mean, I'm sure that Final Fantasy 16 is in some stage of development, but it would yeah, be Yeah, some pre pre-production kind of thing. I would be very surprised if it was in a state where they could show it unless they're going to keep doing what they always do and they have some art for it and they're going to do a trailer with the character yep. that with absolutely yep. no production whatsoever done on it and promise all this stuff and then it's like, "Oh, whoops." That's coming Whoops. out 10 years from now, and we're repeating the same mistake. I wouldn't be surprised if they did that, but I would at the same time, just because of the consolidation of all the business divisions. Yeah, we recently. don't even know who's directing 16. So, yeah. So, anyways, uh, I, I would think Final Fantasy VII Remake and um, and the this Avengers game that they've that they're apparently releasing yeah. this year would be the two big ones. And then a bunch of smaller stuff. Bravely Default, probably... Uh, which hopefully will be a Switch game. That'd be sweet. Um, maybe a couple other things, but I would think mostly this is going to be a seven remake conference. Yeah, I think so. Shy guy says Sony isn't going to E3 when there is uh, info on the PlayStation Five floating around. Seems strange to me. I know. Uh, yeah, I think that's they part did of... confirm the PS Five is not coming this year. So yeah. if they it's came E3 coming... and had more PS Five info and then said it's not. You won't see it till next year. That would also be strange. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, like, I think the whole reason they released that info was because they they think that Xbox might be announcing a new machine. Yeah, they're trying to preempt and be like, hey, guys, wait just a little longer. You'll get yeah. our machine instead. A, a lot um, of companies do that. So who knows why they did it, but they're not going to be at E3. Uh, Modern er Erasmus says the versus 13 strategy. Oh my gosh, that would be such a disaster. There's no way they're going to do that. (laughs) To to try and bring out... Well, wait a minute. What did they call it, though? They sort of like rebranded it, it felt like. But I think... But that was at the end of Kingdom Hearts 3 as like a special unlock ending thing, right? What was that called? Uh, Um, Where it looked like Noctis... Doing yeah, all that stuff. It's, um, you guys will know. Somebody's gonna say it. Uh, Rex, um, something, something Rex. Rex. Hold yeah. on, Nomura Rex, Verum Rex. That's it, Verum Rex. Verum Rex. Is, yeah, it is very. Uh, so, are you talking about the secret ending, or are you talking about Verum Rex, which is basically Final Fantasy versus thirteen? Yeah, that that was in Kingdom Hearts yeah. 3 somewhere, right? That was totally in Kingdom Hearts 3. Yeah, you saw that at the Toy Story World. And it was very, very, is the most Tetsuya Nomura thing I've, I think I've ever seen in my life. So, yeah. So, yeah, so I don't know if that was like just an Easter egg for something that they had been working on, but then was scrapped. And they just or said, hey, it's... let's use it here. Yeah. yeah, like let's just put it in there as an Easter egg. Like yeah. maybe like a, when he first left Final Fantasy XV's development, it was like, well, I'll take some of the ideas and do. Ver- I have no idea what Varum Rex is, but it's certainly not a promise of a game they're making. So. No, it doesn't appear to be. Although that would be, it would be a pretty cool game, I think, if they made it. And since he's directing Final Fantasy VII remake, I wouldn't think they'd be putting any time into Varum Rex. But no, not at the moment. Anyways, I, I I'm pretty sure that this will be like a 70% Final Fantasy VII remake thing. As uh, CJ... Uh, um, uh, sorry, I forgot again. Uh, a Hawaii? A highway? A highway, a highway? A highway yeah. Um, as he's saying, I think it's pretty far in development at this point. It's probably going to release either later this year or early next year, like uh, quarter one or two next year or something like that. That's what I would yeah. expect. Just before the next E3. Yeah. So... I'm I'm pretty sure that's what the focus is going to be, and they'll also have this Avengers game to talk about. I think those are the two major things. But okay, um, we'll have to see though. Yeah. Not too long. We got another. What is it? Is it June? Well, here's 11th? the thing. Basically, the day that this all happens, my, so my wife's pregnant, <laughs> mm. and our next kid is going to be a boy. He will be born. Well, the due date is June 14th. So I'm probably going to miss some of this stuff, but I'll, I'll get caught up. And I probably, I may not even be here for the podcast when it happens, which really is unfortunate. But um, yeah, I might miss the whole thing. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, okay. That's it for uh, stories of the week. Like I said, Thanks. we're skipping, we're skipping our main topic for this week. We'll, do something next yeah. time but we got a bunch of stuff from the community so we'll move straight into community stories here let's do it uh the first question comes from daniel burnham on um patreon hmm. what he says is this he says i'm curious for your hot take 
on the Amazon Lord of the Rings show that's entering production. Specifically, how do you think a series like this one can separate itself from the existing films and carve out a separate identity on screen? Furthermore, do you feel that something about the source material is being lost when the goal of a streaming program is to build viewers' tension from week to week like Game of Thrones? I always admired how the early Lord of the Rings films captured the vast canvas and slow pace of storytelling in Middle-earth, but I feel this will be difficult or impossible in a television format. Any other thoughts you have on the series and the inherent challenges it will face in filming and storytelling are much appreciated. Hmm. Um, I I, uh, am afraid to announce that I have very much I, I don't have a hot take on this because i almost know nothing about it i haven't followed it yeah. nobody really, really does <laughs> <laughs> i know that they're putting a lot of money into it but it doesn't oh, yeah. seem to be catching a lot of buzz really um yeah. but the points he brings up are valid like with the idea that serialized storytelling you know, Thousand and One Nights is basically the template yeah. or has been the template for that for, I don't know, how, when did that come out? Friggin' oh. hundreds of years ago. Well, w- when it came out to the West was like 1870, but it had been written in the Islamic world. Some of the stories even predate modern Islam. So, yeah. But I think a lot of it, they assume sometime around like 1000 AD, but some of the stories are even older than that. So, <clears throat> yeah, like the whole concept of I'm going to tell a story, but leave it on a cliffhanger so that you will be, you know, eager to hear the next part has become like the template for television shows that tell a single overarching plot. And this is more recent, like, right? Because like television, when I was growing up, was not really like that very much. Every episode was self-contained and you had a beginning, middle and end and it resolved and you know, you moved on in like a different situation in the next episode. But more recently with Netflix originals, HBO, uh, you know, more of these like subscription services, paid services for television. Um, it's It's been the case that they try to tell one story for 10 episodes or something. And like every episode leaves you off feeling like, oh, I want the next one. You get. Yeah. So it's the it's. I don't. I, I'm not a huge fan of that kind of stuff. But Chocolate Rob says, "Thank Babylon Five for changing that." That's a good point to bring up. Babylon Five yeah. uh, was doing well, that back in the day. See, here's another thing. Um, Game of Thrones is obviously the current like template for something like this, right? But Game of Thrones comes out once, one episode a week, right? It's being made by HBO, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Services like Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, they typically release an entire series all at once so that people can binge watch the entire thing beginning to end. Good point. So even though Game of Thrones still has this kind of every episode needs to be a cliffhanger, there always needs to be some this much content per episode or whatever because you have to wait a week for the next one. uh, Amazon Prime doesn't actually have to follow that. So they don't have to end every episode with people saying, hey, I have to watch the next one or I can't wait for the next one to keep you hooked for a whole week so that you come back a week later. They can just have a straight 10-hour story that just goes and you stop kind of whenever you want. So there is some room for differences here, although I don't know how much they'll actually take advantage of it. Yeah. Uh, Colin Palusa says, Mr. Wharf." 
fire. So he's obviously uh, mm-hmm. referencing the season three uh, Star Trek The Next Generation cliffhanger. Uh, yeah. Star Trek The Next Generation did this, and a lot, a lot of shows would try this for their uh, season finales and stuff like that. But for the most part, they were self-contained every episode. And they were like freaking 30-something episodes long these seasons. It's like each one an hour long, just an insane amount of content. <laughs> but anyways, mm. um, getting back to what Daniel said here, uh, there is, I, I think, some truth to the concern that uh, the stories of Middle Earth don't necessarily lend themselves to uh, we lost Case and he'll be back. They don't necessarily lend themselves to that kind of storytelling where you're like constantly cliffhanging people. Like the structure of the Song of Ice and Fire series, which is where Game of Thrones comes in, um, he separates his chapters by character. So Chapter one would be this character. It's named after the character. So it'll be like Ned, right? And then the next chapter will be Tyrion. And the next chapter will be Catelyn. And the next chapter will be someone else. And he, and so like, he's almost, he's jumping around different characters in different locations so much that he kind of wrote that suspense into his own novel because he he would leave the character to come back over to this character at a moment of tension where it's like, oh, what's going to happen? So Game of Thrones is was kind of structured like that already in the novel and lent itself very well to being made into a television show. Whereas Lord of the Rings is not. Lord of the Rings, mm. well, Lord of the Rings isn't what's being made, though. It's, it's going to be a series outside of... We don't even of, know exactly what's being made yet. But but did they have they said anything about it's not going to be like the Lord of the Rings story, right? No, it's uh, the idea. I think they've narrowed it down to some things like it's Second Age because the 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 official Twitter account for this Amazon Lord of the Rings has been tweeting out a few things, and they tweeted out a map of Middle Earth that is very much the Second Age. It it, it is missing very certain key features, and certain things are named that um, their names change by the time the Lord of the Rings happens. So we're looking at a second age, something or other. People assume it's going to start somewhere in maybe Numenor, and it will end with Gilgalad and the the, the last alliance um, battle mm-hmm. of, of Sauron. So I mean, see, but here's the thing. That's if they're doing that, thinking. if they're doing that, there is so much room for license there. I mean, like, yes. because <laughs> all is. we really have is... Like this, I don't want to, the word I'm looking for is not rushed. That's just all that's coming to me. But this rushed telling of like the entire history of Numenor in the Silmarillion and maybe some stuff in the Lost Tales and Unfinished or, or uh, uh, History of Middle Earth and stuff like that. So like they're going to be making up, for, again, for a lack of a better phrase, so much content to be able to tell like a coherent story here. Like, I don't know. There's just not a lot of detail about it. So we, we don't even know, because it would make more sense to me if they were going to tell the very end, like the fall of Numenor or something like that. And uh, and so they're going to tell the story of, um, El, not Elendil, uh, uh, Isildur, and his father is Elendil. Yeah, so Elendil and Isildur and his brother... Stuff starts with an A. 
anyways, I'm terrible with names, but the three of them uh, taking like a seed from the tr- the white tree and going back into Middle Earth and establishing the kingdom of Arnor in the north and Gondor in the south, and you know the towers and everything like that. I would assume if they were going to tell a story over a season that it was going to be that of Elendil and Isildur, the fall of Numenor, and then going into establishing the kingdoms in the West and fighting against Sauron. It's again, looking like that. That's but, an and, assumption. And here's the other thing, though. There's They've already paid for, and this is all being filmed at once, multiple seasons. This isn't just season one is this, and then what do they do? This is like three or four seasons that this whole story is going to take from Numenor to the last, to the last Alliance. Hmm. So um, there is a lot of room for them to do all sorts of other things. There's stuff that happens way up north, like tons of stuff. There's stuff that happens down the south with Harad and the Easterlings. Um, there's the arrival of the, you know, well, the wizards, I guess, didn't show up till a little bit later. But anyways, there's a lot of stuff that they can do with this. So it's possible the whole first season is just Numenor, and it ends with the destruction. And then seasons two, three, and four, you know, they're they're paying for a lot here, and I think they've already talked about doing spinoff series as well. Like it's all included in that one billion dollar like initial investment in all this stuff. So yeah, it's, it is a little bit different in that sense. It's freaking crazy, but I mean, I guess my real point is that no, no matter what it, what they do, if it's going to be second age stuff, there is no Lord of the Rings fully fleshed out complete novel. No, that's true. Yeah. That goes yeah. over like one of the events of the Second Age in that. So when you say license, you mean that they're basically going to be making up a lot of stuff. They're making up tons of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's and they they have to. I mean the the content isn't there in its entirety for that many seasons. Yeah. So I I don't know. It's really hard to say like what my opinion yeah. on this would be because uh, I just don't freaking have any clue what they're doing. But I do know they're going to make up a lot of stuff. So that is what yeah. it is. Um, Hopefully it's good stuff. Okay, let me do this real quick. Uh, let's switch gears before we talk about something else to um, showing off some work from some people in the community. This oh, one cool. comes from uh, Greg Troyan, also known as Bear Frog on uh, Discord. He has this... Uh, this I was supposed to do this several weeks ago. Um, here, let me switch uh, over here. Uh, for for the new season of Game of Thrones for episode one. I think episode three is coming out today, so this was a couple weeks ago. Uh, he did some music. The band did some music for the the arrival of the final season of Game of Thrones, so I'm going to play this for probably about a minute. Uh, of course, for those of you who follow, you've heard some of his music on here before, but for those of you who don't, it's like um like an 80s rock vibe. 70s, 80s rock vibe is kind of what they go for with their with their band, so here goes.
All right, I'll leave it off right there. That's Greg Troyan, Lipstick Generation. Uh, link will be in the description. I'll put this into the chat right now for those of you who want to go and listen to that later. Uh, thanks for submitting that, Greg. Cool. Um, okay. There was also another one from rlennon72. I want to let you guys know that I, along with a couple of friends, have started a podcast, the Taverin, a Wheel of Time podcast. This is my very first foray into podcasting. Our pilot episode is now live to be listened to. If you guys have any interest, please check us out. Uh, please don't hesitate to comment on my first performance, as I know I need to still hone my craft. You can reach us on Twitter at TaverinPod. So I'll put that in here. We've launched a new section. Anyways, I can't keep looking for this. we got to move on. But in the future, <laughs> please, please leave a link to the podcast so I can send that to people. Um, but you can find his you can find his Twitter there, and from there, I'm I'm not I think this is it. I don't know if it's being done on Twitch. Here's RPG Golden Years. I don't know if that's a retweet. Yeah, it's just a retweet. So I don't know where your podcast is located. Uh, please reach out to me and let me know where so I can tell people in the future. Um, okay, next comes from. Let's go to Chris Ewan questions. There were a few here that were pretty good. These come on Patreon. Um, first one is, how do you respond to criticism of your creative work? Are there any do's and don'ts that you've learned over the years? What's the best, most useful way to provide criticism to someone else? What kind of criticism has been less than helpful? Um, this, is a <laughs> this is a difficult question to answer. Um, I have typically not been very good uh throughout my time yeah. on the internet at responding to criticism i think the best way to respond to criticism is to obviously like take it in stride and if you agree with it if you think there's truth in it then to address it in your work that follows um that and not to respond at all <laughs> in in written form and comment section that is that is how you should do it. Uh, it's, it's tough for a lot of people to, especially when you feel like the criticism isn't valid. I guess this is part of the other part. What, yeah. What's a good way to do it? Because I've had a lot of people... Let, let's make a distinguish, uh, 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 a delineation here between what is constructive and what is not constructive. Let's say there's a video and you say, this is terrible. That's not constructive criticism. <laughs> That's not, yeah. it's, it's not a bad thing to do if you feel that way. But you, you, if, if someone responds to that and says like, well, why? <laughs> what about it was wrong? You know, if, if the creator reaches out to you and is trying to ask questions or if they get into a fight with you and you're like, uh, why can't you take constructive criticism, bro? I've had people do that to me. And it's like, mm -hmm. you don't know the difference between constructive criticism <laughs> and then just, you know, putting someone down, just being mean to somebody. Yeah. Constructive criticism means you're going to provide what you think the person needs to do differently. Hey, you did it this way, and I don't think it works because A, B, C. That's constructive. That means that you're providing a problem and a solution to the problem. So if you're going to give constructive criticism, you need to provide a solution to what you perceive as a problem. Otherwise, you just say, you suck balls, and I hate you, and I hope you die in a car fire. And the person goes, but why? 
<laughs> Why do you want me to do those Why? things? What did I say to upset you so much? How can I change or address that, right? Yeah. Most criticism on the internet is the latter. People are offended by something you said, or they think you're wrong, or something like that, and they just fire off because of anonymity, mostly. Uh, you know, all the vitriol they feel that are probably, mostly is not related to what you said, but to micro uh, stresses in their lives. And they just sort of like blurt it all out and take it out on people online because, you know, that's the safest way to do it without actually having to encounter somebody and having somebody who might fight you back. So mm -hmm. <laughs> anyways, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, you really have to learn to just completely ignore it. Or if you can't ignore it, if it really is going to get to you, you just need to not look in the first place. Because it's the most impassioned people who comment. The people who are either the most mad or the people who like it the best, who are really big fans of it. You're, either, you're driven by your... It's a strong emotion you feel to leave a comment for feedback. Yeah. This is how it works for um, like Yelp or Google reviews or yeah. like product reviews on Amazon too. You're not hearing from everybody. You're just hearing from the extremes. Yeah. Uh, Misco puts, uh, makes a good point. It's hard to take criticism in the moment. Waiting a day helps a lot. I, yeah. I, have done, I have done that so many times where I wish that I had waited a day to think about it before responding. And it's gotten to the point where pretty much I've, I, I, don't, I don't look at comments on our main channel excuse me, on our main channel at all anymore, unless it's the day of its release. So sure, yeah. when I put the video up that, that same day, I will check the comments and I will respond to people and talk to people because I know that these are people who subscribed for the most part. So they, yeah, that's the day one. Yeah. They actually have interest in giving feedback to help improve the channel. And so if someone writes a negative comment or they write some criticism of the video, I know that they at least are people who follow the channel. They're not just some random person who found the video and is just going to throw something out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's on day two and three and beyond that I start to just not look at it at all. Because if I do that, I'm just going to get freaking mad. Because it's very true that people use internet forums and comment sections for the purpose of spewing their own frustration. So maybe they're not doing it consciously, but they are still using it for that purpose to try and vent some of the, like I said, micro stress that they feel throughout their lives. And when that happens, I mean, they're just looking to troll. They're just looking to make somebody mad. They're looking for a fight. You know, you just got to yeah. stay away from that because they're not they're not actually there to have a conversation about the problem that they perceive to be in your work. So I just don't look at it because I have found throughout my time you know, making videos online that I can't, I can't ignore stuff. Like it, it gets to me. I don't have very thick skin. And so I have to just avoid it in order to not waste a lot of time trying to address people that have no interest in actually having a conversation. Um, so if you're a very thick skinned person, you can do it. You can look at it, you can laugh and, you know, you know, just let it, you know, bounce off you or whatever. But my suggestion would be at, at, at some point where you're getting a lot of feedback, you know, your video is doing really well or whatever you're working on has reached a lot of people. Just don't look at it at all um, unless it's yeah. 
Uh, among the core group of followers that you know have your interest in mind, do they actually care about you? They want to help you get better. Then, yeah, it's very important to take criticism because you, everyone can stand to change and learn and grow and, you know, do things better. Um, so, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I guess I have my thought on that. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, I... I don't know. I, so my thoughts are usually, I don't often respond to people online. So, and I, I usually miss a lot of those comments as well, but um, whenever I see people being overly harsh, sometimes I do respond with like, I do make a snarky comment or some sarcasm somewhere. Uh, but often what I usually will try to do is try to like engage the person like, as politely as possible, I guess. And, uh, you know, just pretend that whatever they're saying is extremely valid and important. And a lot of times what happens is people end up um, kind of softening up to that a little bit. And if they just continue being a jerk, it's not worth your time. But um, sometimes you can soften people up and, and they'll actually, you know, appreciate you more. Or actually they may end up subscribing to your channel and stuff later. So... Every now and then that happens. Usually not, though. Uh, Rob says, so you just miss all the interesting, if late, comments, too? Um, yes, but you have to understand that when you're receiving hundreds of comments a day, that you, you're really just going to have to miss a bunch you're of gonna, Yeah, we kind of have to a little. Cause we don't miss uh, all of them. It's just a lot of them. Because <laughs> we, we are working. You know, we have jobs full time yeah. that we work and then you know we try to squeeze time in at the end of the day uh to to work on videos for the channel and so any time that you're spending reading through comments and trying to you know put thoughts together for responding to people is time you're taking away from working on the next thing you know to yeah out. so yeah. my rule of thumb is spend the day that you upload a video reaching out to people maybe the day after Right. But beyond that, I kind of just I can't look at it. It's just it's too much of a time commitment, really, more than anything else. Um, okay, good question. Thank you for that. Um, some storytelling experts like to argue that your protagonist needs some kind of flaw to overcome. Are video game protagonists exempt from this rule? Should they be? Did an episode on this. I think it's our second episode of the State of the Arc podcast. Yeah, I remember this, actually. Yeah. Um, so if your main character is what's called a flat character, so they don't have much of an arc, they don't go through a change or they don't have like a serious problem they have to overcome, uh, flat arc characters should work to change the supporting cast. Yeah, so exactly. Instead of the main character having this big flaw he has to overcome or he or she or whatever, um, Instead of having the main character go through that arc, you have a supporting cast or, or uh, the, the minor characters. They have big problems and the main character goes into their lives and helps them change. Um, Paddington yeah. is an example of this. Uh-huh. Uh, Paddington, yes. the animated film. Yeah, the bear. Um, so where you have a character who's mostly fine, doesn't really need you – know, it's already arrived at sort of a philosophy of life or a way of doing things that is the right way but goes and affects change in other people's lives. Whereas on the reverse of that, if you have a main character that's going to experience a big change and a big arc in their story, you have supporting characters who are going to come in and, and enlighten that character and help them 
you know, realize the the flaws in their personality and help them change. You know, you have the old wise man who will like give the bit of advice that they need to hear kind of a thing. So it doesn't have to be the main character, but you do need, you do need flawed characters somewhere. Um, but it does not have to be the main character. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's that, and I'll just do one more from Chris. Replaying Ocarina of Time, I'm starting to think that the story... Let me pull it over here. The story makes no sense at all. Why is it important for me to collect all the spiritual stones if Ganondorf couldn't get them before and can now that I have them? Uh, Why was I sealed away for seven years? Why does beating Ganondorf in the future fix things in the past? I find that I don't mind having these questions. They... Uh, never even occurred to me until now. Maybe y'all could take uh, talk generally about emotional storytelling mattering more than logical storytelling. Maybe there are other examples of things that don't make huh. sense but yet work really well from a raw emotional perspective, like the moment when you arrive in Hyrule Castle Town in the future and it's full of uh, redeads. Got any thoughts huh. on that? Um, well, that's interesting. Um Hmm. I would say not necessarily. I would say that Ocarina of Time and the Zelda games in general have a very ambiguous it's it's ambiguous the way they sort of they don't give a lot of detail, right? They're not gonna sit there and have like a a 15 minute conversation where they detail a lot of stuff. They're just gonna be like, here's the problem and you need to go do this now. Uh Nintendo has never been about story first. Um, they've always been about uh, the gameplay loop first and so I don't think that there is necessarily there's no there's no um, explanation given by the characters for why Ganondorf doesn't go get the spiritual stones himself but I think that for something like that you could logically draw that he's trying to sort of infiltrate uh politically right like hyrule and sort of like he's pulling the strings from behind the scenes kind of a thing so any sort of like act open act of war where he goes and like pillages or steals would be detrimental that's not to say that he wouldn't eventually have done that or or found a way to get in there that's that's not exactly true though i mean he at least the kokiri forest to the deku tree he cursed he cursed the deku tree and all three of the areas were I cursed. I think Jabu Jabu mentions that that he had come by as well, and, and he and, doesn't mention it, but the king does. And uh, Darunia also said that he had like, oh, he no, that was when, when you're an adult. I'm trying to remember the story here. Darunia mentions something about Ganondorf, though he's mad, and so like obviously he is making sort of open aggressive moves. Yeah. But anyways, my point is is that I think you can you can logically assume that he would have tried to find a way, but there's obstacles in his path. Zelda just happens to coincidentally in trying to prevent him from taking because she's a little girl, you know, she's not doing this at the behest of like the Hyrule Council or something. She's she's a yeah. little girl who's like taking matters into her own hands and and is actually doing the wrong thing. So she's actually bringing the stones to him, which is what, you know, nobody would have advised you to do. But these little kids, that they're doing something good, and they just make the yeah. situation worse. They do what he couldn't have done himself at that time, but would have tried to do later by force. Yeah, I believe he would have eventually done it. 
Right. So that's what I would respond to that. But as for why is it seven years? Uh, why... Well, my understanding with that was always that he he was he was too young. Like he couldn't stand up to um, Ganondorf so young. His he needed to have a bigger frame. He needed to be stronger. He needed to be a little taller. Yeah, so it's like he's the hero of time, right? He's the prophesied chosen one. So he's the chosen one archetype. But the sage was like, he's too little to actually have a chance of winning right now. I'm going to keep him here until he's exactly old enough (laughs) to where, okay, now go out there. You know what I mean? Like he's he's actually developed. He's still a teenager, but he's at least now strong enough to try. They kept him there as long as possible to just get him through childhood and adolescence basically so yeah. that's that's what i would say to that um why does now now we're getting into time time traveling questions why does beating gender from the future fix things in the past uh time travel is never a perfect i <laughs> uh, you know anytime we have time travel it's like okay this <laughs> but um this actually brings up something that it's a topic i want to talk about in the future because it's something i'm working on right now in the novel that i'm writing which and this is something that Brandon Sanderson really, really like stresses, uh, and that is having a, um, like a well-defined system of magic for your story, right? Because oh, if yeah. you don't, if you don't define the rules for the magic, it's going to always feel like the solution to the problem, if it's done with magic, feels like a deus ex machina. It feels like, oh, that was coincidental. You could have done that all along (laughs) because nobody knows what the rules are. There's no defined feature to like what you can and cannot do with magic. So Zelda is never going to have a hard, quote unquote, magic system like that ever. Because they're not focused on that. They're focused on making the game fun to play. But in storytelling, if you want to avoid people saying, why this, why that, and asking all these questions, you need to really sit down and define the rules and make some hard limits to your magic. Otherwise, that's always going to be a problem. Uh, yep. Anyways, that's, I guess, answering the last part of it, too, with logical storytelling. Sometimes you don't need that. Like, I was watching Doctor Strange the other day with this in mind. Are they going to do a hard magic system? Are they going to define how magic <laughs> yeah. works? And they didn't really. But what they did do, though, so they didn't define how the whole magic system works, right? That would probably be tedious for the average moviegoer to be like, really? We're going to sit here and listen to explanations of like how it yeah. all works? No one's going to want to watch that. But they did at least define the parameters for the key magic that was used to solve the major plot problem in the end right so they still set that up and defined how that works so if you're going to have your plot resolved by magic at least at least set boundaries for the the particular magic that you're going to use to solve the problem even if all the rest of it there's questions open right Mm. okay interesting thank you for that um chris gion Okay, we'll get through a couple more here and then we'll wrap up. This comes from Zen Men's. Are there any rules of writing or filmmaking that you dislike or disagree with or disregard in your own work? That's actually a tough question. I picked it it because I told him I would, but it's really hard to answer that question. Yeah, it's it's like stuff that's in the moment, right? I mean, we've broken a lot of rules a lot of times, but 
there's never a, a like a rule for this is when you break the rule. <laughs> it's just sometimes you break the rule in order to get across what you wanted to get across. And I can't even think of any examples right now. But I know that we did it a lot. <laughs> sometimes it's done just because there's such a formula to storytelling that breaking the rule is the only way to surprise the audience because they expect it's going to go this way. But then you don't do that. It's like, what? So sometimes breaking rules can be effective for that reason, for actually like making the story surprising. But I would say for the most part, the rules are there for a reason. We've been doing this for a super long time, storytelling. We've we've yeah. gotten pretty good at recognizing what works and what doesn't work. Uh, Misko brings up 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah, like obviously that's super almost avant-garde in its approach. Yes, it's, exactly. <laughs> it's very art, very much like an art film. <laughs> yeah. And and you, you don't know where it's going. You don't know how to interpret it on your first viewing maybe. And it's just like, what is happening? Because we're so like locked into this uh, formula that that, you know, here with a thousand faces sort of details that that's what we want to see. That's what's satisfying to people. I want to see a person have a problem and a conflict arise. I want them to go through growth and change as they try to like tackle that problem. And as they're doing it the wrong way, they change as a person because it's, it's again, storytelling at its core has always been about um, vicarious experience. It's like, what can I learn? What can I glean? What can I like apply to myself? Yeah, that's how that's how it started. That's why we tell stories. Yeah, so it's like, you know, this structure we have, the formula we have, is one that includes all of these elements to allow a person to do that. Yeah. Um so I, I, I can't say that there's any one thing that I would say that I disagree with. Yeah. Like that I think is wrong. But, but when, I, but, when but we I'd break cer- the rules, why do we do it? <laughs> yeah, I would say when you do decide, I'm going to disregard this, it's usually because you want to surprise the audience. Yeah, you that's want, probably most common. You want them to expect you're going to do this and to lead them into that, uh, like we've talked about in previous podcasts, the, the sleight of hand there. You're trying to lead them into a conclusion that they think is going to happen, but then actually... You know, we did a podcast on what makes a good plot twist. Um, I think that this would apply to that. You you probably want to think about breaking a rule when you're doing yeah. a, a plot twist, right? Um, but doing it for the right reasons to surprise the audience. I don't know. I, I wish I had a better answer for that, but I, I think that's really all I can come up with. Uh, Colin Peluso says, the Big Lebowski breaks the rules. All the non sequiturs amount to absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's true. Which is surprising. But again, I, itself, think, but... I think a lot of times when good writers do that, though, that is almost the point, right? It's, it's, a, it's almost like, not like nihilistic <laughs> necessarily the message, but it's like sometimes life is just life. And like, you know, things yeah. aren't going to work out the way you expect. And you, how do you deal with that? You know, how do you move on? Right. And like... Things don't go your way. Things are completely unexpected. Actually, they do that in a lot of their movies, uh, the Coen brothers do. Uh, yes. The reading is the same way. There's a whole scene dedicated to like the CIA director being like, uh, okay, so what do we learn from this? He's like, 
I have no idea and not then to they, do it again. They decide, don't do it again, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But I, I, I don't know what we did. <laughs> I know. Don't do what again? Right. There is sometimes a refreshing sort of like theme in that, though, in that like life can be so random sometimes and you can be so caught off guard and not know what to do. And sometimes yeah. you just got to shrug your shoulders and just move forward, you know, like. Anyways, I think that that's a relatable sort of like scenario in and of itself. And it's a, it's a nice way to break the rules of storytelling, but make it relatable in that like, there's a problem here. Something went wrong. I don't know what it is. I have no idea how we address this, <laughs> but something has to be done. Lock it away and let's just try to be better going forward. Okay. <laughs> you know, that's funny because it's so relatable it in life. Yeah. So, anyways, last question for the day. How do you define an RPG? Now, this is a larger context to this, uh, and it was in yeah. response to something that we had said um, a, a couple weeks ago. Let me actually pull up the whole thing. Uh, this comes from Core Games on Twitter. Um, and he says, I listened to the latest podcast, and I have an idea for a new discussion based on things you said. That being, how do you define an RPG? I don't think RPGs should be defined as being about experience and being better at something, but hmm. are about character interactions. If there were zero character interactions in Final Fantasy VII and the game was only the combat, I think it would not be describable as an RPG. I would say the same for D&D. I uh, hope to hear back from you. So hmm. you're making a sort of um, a distinction here between do mechanics or does the story make an RPG? That's what it seems like to me. Um, and I guess I have a different way of thinking about it. My way of thinking about it is, is, is that you are role playing a character. That's what an RPG is, right? It's not about mm -hmm. the supporting cast to me or the, 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 um, the characters, the, the, the NPCs, or, or even like the other active party members or whatever, and the way that they interact with each other. That, that's story, which I, I think you can make an RPG without a story. Because an yeah, RPG is so. about, I'm taking on the role of this character, and I'm going to build this character up, right? I'm going to make choices about this character's appearance, uh, this character's abilities, the way that I will make choices for this character in certain situations, you are stepping into the shoes of a character and taking that character in a direction you want to take them. That to me is the core definition of an RPG. Now, obviously there are gradients to how much control you have over the character's say appearance or abilities, but at its core, you're still, you're still taking control of a character and you're making choices about that character's progression throughout that game, right? So to me, mechanics are a, a much bigger part of it than it seems to be for you. Because if we took away the story elements from Final Fantasy VII, yes, it still very much would be an RPG because I still choose what equipment I put on my character. I still choose... Um, which materia I use and, and how. You're making all these choices for the character, controlling the character. Now, it's not as as much detail as a D&D, &D, 
where I'm going to be this class. And because I'm this class, I'm going to choose these abilities and I'm going to cho choose in what situation, how I'm going to use those abilities. I think all those, the mechanics, the, the nuts and bolts underneath the game itself are what make it an RPG more than the story elements do. Because it's about, I'm going to play this character and I'm going to choose how I set the character up. I'm going to strategize how I'm going to use my abilities in the next fight that's coming. And when story elements are introduced, I will choose how I interact with those people and that sort of thing. The only true role-playing that there is is essentially tabletop. And we've taken elements of that into video games and given the illusion of choice, we've talked about that a lot. You don't really have a choice. It's just binary. You choose this or this, or maybe you can have a whole tree. But in the end, you can't, you can't really go outside of the confines of the dialogue tree, right? So you're, you're not truly role-playing. It's just the illusion that you are. Um, and so, anyways, to me, it's more about how you choose to play the character. That's role-playing more than it is about the, the supporting cast and the character interactions of the story. That's how I, I would define it. I would agree with that. Um, although even sometimes character, the choices you make with the characters is, is are limited, and I yeah. would still call it an RPG. Oh, sure. But I think mechanics have just so much to do with it. The, the, you know, the, you have video games, right, which are, I don't know, just systems and characters and stories. And then yeah. you have the different types of games, which is the different types of systems basically so i don't know um let's see what people are saying here in the comments before we wrap up right, so my misco is saying so is destiny an rpg <laughs> it has rpg elements for it sure. does um do you level up in destiny i don't know does the character like level up do you you i know you can choose classes um i've, I've never played destiny, played destiny can, once in my I can't life really speak <laughs> for it i can't really speak for it i don't know yeah uh, Lego Dog. WRPGs tend to be mechanic focused. JRPGs are more story focused. That is generally true. Hmm. Uh, Rob says no. Uh, RPG equals rocket propelled grenade. That's tr also true. Uh, what are we talking about? We're <laughs> that was the. It, it's not rocket science um, comment from before. <laughs> we are. We are um, so off base with this. Our, our definition is terrible. I know. Um. Misco says Final Fantasy have pretty much zero story choice. That's true as well. And so, you know, that that is another argument that can be made that maybe they're not exactly RPGs. But again, to me, it's all mechanics focused in FF. It's about which material am I going to put on my guy? Which, which uh, class am I going to choose? Which party members am I going to bring with me? That element of choice on the mechanics side is what makes it an RPG. Hmm. Approach to uh, the gameplay. Wiseman says, my favorite RPG is Duke Nukem 3D's interaction. Possibilities are varied. It can blow up in your face. I have not played that. So never heard of it. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> I think I've heard of it, it, but I never played it. Uh, to me, it's about exploring a big world more than anything, says Misko. I think that's actually a big part of it. Uh, remember when um, we covered a story where Tetsuya Takahashi said that, right? Like map building was the most important element, like the core element of RPGs. He said maps hmm. were, were like the main thing. Interesting. <laughs> the most important part of an RPG is maps. Well, um, I guess he does a lot more. Um, he's more on the exploration side of things. Yeah. 
So it would make sense that he would say something like that, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I felt about uh, uh, Skyrim. Like Skyrim, for mm. me, the most enjoyable part was the exploration. That's why yeah, I it's an it, RPG, right? but it was all about exploring. Mm. So it's definitely a big part of it. Um, Lego Dog says Destiny 1 has leveling up. Well, maybe we'll call it an RPG then. Colin says, is this podcast an RPG? No, it's not. <laughs> None of you either. fetchers have any choice here. <laughs> nope. Uh, is life an RPG? Yes, it is. Um, okay, last one. No FF is an RPG to me. Just pointing out the definition is weird. Oh, I, I wasn't insinuating that you think it's not an RPG. Sorry if I did. I was just saying that uh, it's, it's, its story elements are not RPG-esque. It is the mechanics that make it an RPG, mostly. Mostly. But there are sometimes here and there, and this is the case with a lot of JRPGs, where they give you like, hey, you're going to do this? You can say yes or no or <laughs> say something weird. They have it like, um, for instance, with the date in Final Fantasy VII, right? It, it changes who goes with you depending on what you say. Oh, with yeah. The few limited choices they give you, whether you get Tifa or Eris or uh, yeah. Yuffie or Barrett. So, anyways, yeah. There are some elements of it there, but it's very small in comparison to telling this linear story they had in mind. Yeah. So there's not a lot of role-playing you know, in the story. very few games today are just straight, pure RPGs. Yeah. Most of the time, you just say, oh, it has RPG elements, right? That's, yeah. that's, what you, that's more common now, I think. Yep. Okay, guys, that is it. We're done for today. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate you. Appreciate your support. Yes. Uh, hit us up. Hit us up. We haven't been getting a lot of um, uh, community stories lately. If you're working on something, you want to share it. Uh, you know, make sure to go to our Discord and in the community stories section, share a link to the thing you're working on, so that we can share it with the people. Get you guys some some people checking out checking out your stuff. Yes, please do. Uh, otherwise, we will see you again soon. Uh, we got two pretty cool videos in the works, getting close. So look forward to those on my channel. And have a great rest of your Sunday. Peace out, everybody. All right. Peace. <laughs>